Hello, Doobie listeners. This is Adam Venrick, and you are listening to The Coffee Hour. My guest this week is a professor of cinema here at Denison University. He teaches a class uh, specifically on horror movies, and that's sort of what we're going to be talking about today. Listeners, please welcome Dr. Jonathan Wally. Dr. Wally, how are you today? I'm good. Uh, I'm happy to be uh, talking about this subject with you, especially at this time of year uh, when uh, the mind turns to horror movies and scary stories and the like. So I think this is a great time to be having this talk. I agree. And as I as I was saying before we started the interview, this was very much on my mind as well. I think it's bound bound to be on a lot of people's minds because this has been a, a you know, comparatively very scary here, just in general. Um, but, yeah, let's start with the preliminary question. Um, so I have actually taken your horror movie class before, um, but most of my listeners have not. So you are a, you're a professor of film. Um, you teach the selective course on horror films. Um, what interests you uh, about that particular genre? Right. I think, well, there's a couple of reasons. There are a couple of things that I, I find appealing about horror, and there are a couple of reasons that, I, that I'm drawn to it. I think probably the, the first reason, and this is maybe chronological order, that as a kid I loved horror movies. And I love science fiction movies and TV shows and fantasy films, mm-hmm. sort of that area of cinema and of stories. And um, a, a lot of kids do because, uh, you know, horror and related genres are um, sort of projections of our own imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and fantasies and and um, and not, not many kind of deep, psychoanalytic sense just um it's you know watching a horror film is you know like watching a very convincing uh, portrayal of um your own imagination at least if your imagination skews that way and I, mm-hmm. and I think that young people's imaginations do tend toward you know the impossible um and that's what i think horror gives us um even if it is frightening and, and that can sometimes be sort of um something that's unappealing uh, about the genre but i always I, I think i was always interested in you know in scary stories and you know whether that's just something that's in me genetically or or there's some other reason behind it i've i've not given it an awful lot of thought but i think um another reason is that i i grew up in the 70s and 80s that's mm-hmm. when i was a kid mm-hmm. and that was a golden age for the horror genre mm-hmm. and not just in film um, it was a golden age for horror film. It was a golden age for um, horror literature. This is really when people like Stephen King and Dean R. Kuntz and mm-hmm. Peter Straub mm-hmm. came to prominence, and, and some of those authors became almost household names and celebrities. Um, there was horror on television. There were horror comic books. Um, so there was a real resurgence of the genre across narrative media. Um, and... I think coupled with some of the things that were going on culturally and socially. Um, so the satanic panic of the eighties, um, <laughs> comes to mind, um, that, that, that it was just a very good time for horror. Now I was actually during most of the seventies and eighties, I was too young to see a lot of these films in the theater. Um, and I was never really one for sneaking in. So I saw a lot of them, um, on VHS um, and th- this was also the time that home video was becoming a thing, uh, whether that was renting VHS tapes or watching films on HBO or Showtime in their infancy. Um, and I think part, part of the fun was discovering these films, and it was often something that my friends and I did sneakily, um, often because our parents didn't approve of us. Um, consuming that kind of material, especially if it was rated R. Mm -hmm. So I remember lots of afternoons at friends' houses when parents were away or otherwise busy watching, you know, the the video cassette of Alien or Mm -hmm. Dawn of the Dead or or whatever, and especially fast-forwarding to the really juicy scenes, you know, the chest burster scene in Aliens or, you know, the scene where Reagan's head spins 360 degrees in The Exorcist. Um, so, So the kind of having to sneak around and the, the sense of horror as being something that you kind of snuck into um, when you were a kid, I think that was also uh, something that, that made it appealing. And as I've gotten older, 
um, I think from the time I was a teenager and really realized that I was interested in film. I think one of the things that I really came to feel about horror is that it is, um, it's a popular genre, mm-hmm. but it's also uh, potentially a very subversive genre. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting contrast. The idea that a genre that is popular, that is critic, that is commercially popular, that has a wide audience um, can also be, in some cases, I think deeply subversive. And in fact, the more popular a horror film is, the more subversive it can be. If you have only a handful of horror devotees watching a film, there's not going to be a lot of subversion going on. But if you have a large, you know, like a mass popular audience um, consuming a fiction that at least implicitly challenges or undermines widely held views and beliefs and, and moral codes, um, that's that's the potential for great subversion. And that's something that I think I've, I've really come to appreciate about horror as I've as I've gotten older. I think I think that's probably fair the more I think about it cuz like I don't know like if I think about any number of the Friday the 13th sequels there's not like a lot of moral depth in that it's just you know violence but like you know think about something like Midsommar which everyone went to see that was like you know it was deeply morally challenging um so much so that I I've had like 3 hour arguments with people about it but um, that brings me to my next question. Uh, do you, and it wasn't one that I had written down, um, do you think that then horror is almost like a coming-of-age thing? Yeah, I think it can be, and I think in a lot of people's lives it, it, it has been. Um, you know, horror, among other things, horror movies are traditionally popular date movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually some psychological and sociological research on this phenomenon. It really goes back... I think it really goes back to at least the 1950s when um, the Hollywood studios were beginning to recognize that they um, could cultivate niche markets uh, mm-hmm. instead of instead of making every film aimed at a mass audience. Um, that they would that they could be more profitable by going after um, specific demographics, and, and teenagers were among the first to be targeted. And um, teen picks were very often um, science fiction horror hybrids. So the blob mm-hmm. would be one that would really stand out in, in that period. Um, and, and they were date movies. The idea being that they were um, they were aimed specifically at, at teenagers. So they were kind of a part of the youth youth culture that belonged to that audience that maybe didn't quite belong to the grownups. Um, it also allowed teenagers, I think, to differentiate themselves from little kids. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're going to see movies that are either R-rated and so little kids aren't allowed in them, or they're going to see movies that, um, you know, are scary and contain images and, and sequences that really aren't appropriate for children. So there's a way in which um, that, I think, is part of the ways in which young people start to kind of develop their their sense of self, is I'm no longer this this little kid anymore, but I'm also not, I'm not part of the adult world. And it's also, especially in the context of dating while Mm -hmm. watching these movies, or or even if not dating, just seeing these movies in groups. Mm -hmm. So whether you're on a date or whether you're just with friends, um, that the way people respond to fearsome imagery, you know, whether it's just really tense and suspenseful scenes or whether it's graphic, bloody, gutty imagery, um, that, that, that is a way for young people who are coming of age to start kind of trying out various kinds of behaviors, um, including like the gendered behavior of, say, women acting more frightened and the men having to put their arms around them and and to act like they're not really scared and they can take it. And, um, so so there's a way in which, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's, a, it's a very social genre and, and people do seem historically to have liked to have gone to horror films mm-hmm. in groups and experience these kinds of things together. Um, and I think that has this particular resonance with people who are in that coming-of-age zone. So, yeah, I think that's a good question. Thank you. Um, well, and with that, we should talk about... Well, we we talked about why it's appealing as a genre. Um, one thing I'd like to talk about is what what sort of makes something horror over, like a very, very tense thriller or over like just pure science fiction. How would you, how would you make that differentiation? Yeah. Well, with science fiction maybe makes it slightly tricky, but, but, you know, maybe what we can do is kind of triangulate the position of the horror genre between 
something like science fiction um, and something like a thriller, uh, you know, a, a film of terror. Um, so, you know, I, I think that horror is definitely characterized by the supernatural or, or the impossible. Mm-hmm. That gets tricky when we get into slasher films because the slashers are human. I mean, you know, Michael Myers is, is a human and, you know, he has a backstory. But I think very often, even when you have horror movies like Halloween or Friday the 13th, where the killer is human, um, the, the killer is nevertheless represented in a way that's kind of superhuman. Um, that, that, you know, I mean, Michael Myers can't seemingly be killed. Be killed. Um, once Jason Voorhees of the Friday the 13th series actually comes into play, he's dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he really becomes a kind of zombie slasher. And that's then you get Freddy and, and so forth. So I, I do think that in horror, um, it's it's not just uh, it's not just films about things that are generally fearsome or that we might even call in ordinary language horrifying. I, I think there there is a supernatural dimension to it, even if it's there kind of implicitly. <clears throat> um, I also think there is in horror films that, that horror films don't just trade in fear or intense fear that they um, they actually trade in disgust. Um, and that disgust is maybe just the kind of immediate physical disgust at seeing something that we would think is gross or seeing graphic violence on the screen. But I also think that there is maybe an underlying moral revulsion, um, you know, that there's a kind of fundamental unwholesomeness or uncleanliness um, to, let's say, creatures or monsters, you know, the bad guys, um, uh, the agents of horror in horror films. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think that um, that's not a necessary component of science fiction. In science fiction, you might have things that are either supernatural or at least not currently explainable by our available scientific models. But those things are not necessarily threatening or, um, or kind of revolting um, and, and, and gruesome. Um, whereas, you know, films about, you know, films of terror that involve things like serial killers as opposed to slashers or, um, you know, even films about war or films about other events that we would call horrifying in a different, in a different sense of the word, they don't have the supernatural aspect of it, uh, that, that generates the fear. So I think that's, that's where horror is. Um, so I, I think that, I guess for me that ultimately horror does, now, now I'm going to complicate what I'm, I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to complicate it. I, I think it does have to involve some kind of supernatural element. Now, that being the case, and, and I think that's traditionally what has defined the horror genre. However, you know, we do have um, subgenres or cycles of the horror film that, that resolutely do not have any kind of supernatural um, element. And so films like Saw and mm-hmm. Hostel, mm-hmm. you know, films that some people call torture porn yeah. or body horror. Yeah. Those are, I think, commonly thought of and marketed as horror films, um, but they they do not have any supernatural element. What they do have, though, um, in buckets, is this kind of revolting, um, uh, both sort of physically and morally revolting violence. Um, and so maybe there's a way in which the genre is, is shifting a little bit um, as these films become... Uh, you know, generally thought of and understood as horror films. Uh, and as time goes by and they become part of kind of the historical canon of horror, um, you know, we might just have to make a little bit more room in, in the genre for what might be called kind of natural or real horror. Um, so, the, you know, the horror that we feel at the kind of depths of depravity that, that real non-supernatural human beings can, um, can inflict on each other. Well, and with that, I want to ask um, something speaking of cycles, you know, we could talk about like the midnight movies. We could talk about pink flamingos or last house on the left where like, you know, those are, you know, those are both thoroughly human films. Pink flamingos is even like bright and pastel colored, but it reaches a point where the acts that we see on the screen go so far beyond, I guess the Overton window of morality. Um, (laughs) I, I guess like, you know, does it then make a human antagonist or a human character somehow something above or below humanity? 
in the eyes yeah, of the Yeah, I mean, audience. I think that that's true. And, and, you know, and there are films that, that um, trade in that kind of imagery, those kinds of acts and, and scenes, um, you know, kind of freak show films. Um, and very often, you know, they have a kind of cult status precisely mm-hmm. because by their nature, they're appealing to such a small portion of the, of the general audience. Um, you know, in the same way that, you know, freak shows and carnivals, uh, you know, would have been. Um, you know, I, I would say that, say, a film like Pink Flamingo, so the kind of, you know, bef- before John Waters softened and became <laughs> more popular, the, the, those kinds of films um, might horrify us in a kind of strictly kind of sense of that's really disgusting. Yeah. That's really depraved. Yeah. I don't think they generate fear. Yeah. Necessarily. However, a film like Last House on the Left, you're right, it is it is just a rape revenge film. Yeah. Um, and an especially violent one. Um, and, but right, there's absolutely no supernatural element, but I do think that it, I mean, I, I guess, I don't know, if if I'm watching a film like that, I certainly am feeling disgust. I'm, I'm feeling physical disgust. I'm feeling moral revulsion mm-hmm. at the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose I'm certainly sympathizing with the victim, mm-hmm. unquestionably. Mm-hmm. I don't know that what I'm feeling, though, is fear of the same sort that I fear feel at a you know film about zombies or ghosts or werewolves um, or superhuman slashers. Um, you, you know, you, you fear for the the safety, the well beings, and the lives of of characters. But I don't know if it's the same kind of fear um, that you feel when you entertain the notion of a, a supernatural creature that is also th- potentially threatening to to life and limb. Well, but there's no doubt that those films are thought of. That films like again, Last House on the Left, or the more recent kind of torture porn mm-hmm. films. That, that you know, those are I think widely thought of and, and talked about by critics and fans alike as as horror films. So we may need to find a way to skew our understanding of the genre. But I mean that's normal. That's just, you know, just historical change. Well, that does bring up, you know, we've talked a bit about cycles, but it brings up a really important institution in not American cultural history, but in uh, part of the European canon, is the idea of the Grand Guignol, which was, mm-hmm. you know, like this super important theater that was famous for decades for producing natural horror shows with, like, buckets of blood and as realistic onstage gore as possible, and they would do, like, the Duchess of Malfi and Titus Andronicus. Right. And, you know, like... Is there, I guess what I'm trying to ramp up to is, is there something, does the horror set in when we get close enough to like see that pain, I guess is what I'm asking. Maybe. Um, right. I, right. I mean, the, the, the place of um, human suffering in the horror film, I mean, that, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um and you know there are there are some horror films that I think are unproblematically horror films yeah. that do um, that do tend to fixate um, or to linger on those on those moments of human suffering. Um, you know, whereas there are some slasher films where the, the murders are actually really kind of quick, concise affairs. Yeah, um, like Peeping so, Tom. Right. I mean, there's 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 a long history of entertainments. Um, and, and you're right, they're more prevalent in Europe than they have been elsewhere. But, you know, they, they have been in this country, too. But there's a long history of entertainments that are gruesome mm-hmm. and that are about seeing um, seeing acts of depravity and of extreme violence and human suffering represented graphically. So, you know, the buckets of blood. Um, and I think sometimes that tradition has intersected with... Um, horror more conventionally understood mm-hmm. and other times I, I think it's it's maybe been its own kind of form of, of entertainment and you know I, I think one thing especially that it probably could be said to have in common with, with horror is that it is partly about just the visual spectacle of some kind of violence um, and you know of something gruesome represented realistically mm-hmm even though you know it's not realistic, yeah. right? I mean, it can only be entertaining, I think, for most people if they know that however vividly it's depicted, it's not real. 
Um, because if they, the audience believes it real, it's real, then you really can't be enjoying it as art because no. it's actually genuine suffering. But, <laughs> yeah. um, so I think that, that one of the things that you could say that, that does link that tradition with horror as more typically understood is, is that, you know, horror is very much about spectacle that, and especially fans of horror, you know, they kind of collect their favorite scenes. And yeah, when yeah. I teach the horror, uh, film class, you know, I've got you know the the video equivalent of the greatest hits mixtape. You know, <laughs> great scenes, including great scenes from films that are otherwise totally forgettable. So that those that emphasis on spectacle, to the extent that it can even kind of disrupt the narrative a bit, that is something that I think that that um, some horror films, including some very good horror films, do have in common with that entertainment tradition that you just referenced. Mm-hmm. Um. One, uh, let's, let's, let's shift slightly, um, because this is another aesthetic component, um, that I have been meaning to ask about, but we got sidetracked. Um, what is the uncanny? Because that's something you've talked about in class before. Yeah. So the uncanny is kind of complicated, partly because it's been used in in different contexts. Um, I mean, actually Freud uses it to describe, um, a certain kind of very specific and and somewhat difficult to pin down psychological state, but it's also been used um, much more in much more kind of aesthetic studies of things like literature and film. To me, what it comes down to is this. I think that when we think of the typical horror film, we think of discernible agents of evil and chaos, Mm -hmm. the ghost, the zombie, the werewolf, the vampire, Leatherface, whatever, you know, um, that, that, the, the mayhem and the murder and the fear are, are all the work of an agent or a group of agents, you know, the zombie horde. Um, but there are horror films and horror tales. Um, and in literature, the main figure here is H.P. Lovecraft, mm-hmm. um, where there are certainly supernatural elements and there might even be supernatural beings that are, you know, horror monsters, you know, like any other. But ultimately, the source of the evil is not localizable to right. to some kind of discernible agent. Um, it's almost as if a particular place or nature itself or the cosmos has a kind of evil will that's aligned against people. So I think the standout example of this in film would be The Shining, mm. where certainly, you know, The Shining does eventually become about a man chasing his family around with an axe. Mm-hmm. And so he is kind of the monster. But he really is represented in that film as more of like a puppet of supernatural forces that manifest in lots of different visible ways, but that ultimately can't be, you know, that, that can't be pinned down to if, if we kill this creature, then we win and we're okay. It's as if the hotel that the the enormous hotel that the film takes place in, or even just the mountainous region that it's in, this kind of isolated mountainous region in Colorado. It's almost as if that's an evil place, um, and and there's there's evil everywhere you turn, as opposed to oh, there might be something lurking behind that tree or in that basement. And so I think that's that is that's I think what the uncanny. Can can mean most kind of usefully to people who study to, who study horror. Um, and H.P. Lovecraft wrote about this a lot. Mm-hmm. That he talked about the fear of the unknown. Um, and, and I think what he also means is kind of the fear of the unknowable. Yeah. Um, the idea that there are kind of vast evil cosmic forces that are very ancient that are that are that are so far beyond our ability to perceive. Um, you know that that they're not like normal horror monsters. Um, and the emotion that's the, the, the word that's commonly given to the emotion that we feel from that kind of scenario is dread mm-hmm. uh, kind of sense of anxiety or unease um, that, that's that's so pronounced but that ultimately can't be attributed to to one thing it's it's interesting actually that you would bring that up because I don't have uh, on my desk I don't have Lovecraft but I do have the book that he sort of ripped off for all of his career. I have the King in Yellow on my desk. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. I, I've been rereading it, um, and a friend once described it to me as the book that has inspired all those terrible occult movies. Um, 
But it's it's weird. It's kind of like the uncanny is the the goth cousin of absurdism because reading it, like you don't feel like oh Cthulhu's going to come and murder me in my sleep. But what you do feel is like this extreme detachment that you didn't feel beforehand, and that is kind of unpleasant. Yeah, um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, you. you you mentioned goth, and I, I, I'm guessing that you mean the musical genre and not necessarily sort of gothic literature, right. gothic art in general, although right. obviously the goth culture is, is yeah. related to that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately there there's... That I think that the gothic as a kind of literature and a kind of art and the uncanny and the sort of the dread-based tale in, in literature and film come out of a kind of romantic uh, imagination, mm-hmm. capital R romanticism, um, um, where there's maybe kind of a change in the way that, that people perceive the world and, and their relationship to it. Um, and they're able to, they understand things like will and intent um, and, and possibly evil um, in nature itself, especially in really awesome, you know, enormous spectacles like outer space mm-hmm. or the ocean um, or the the enormous ancient forest. And some of that imagery, you know, which for a long time, you know, it's kind of hard to make films about that because, yeah. you know, films are about showing you something and, you know, it's easier to show a monster. Um, <laughs> it's hard to show an evil cosmos. Yeah. <laughs> right? Or... Or, or, you know, but I think that there are certain films that, you know, again, The Shining is one of them. Um, more, a more recent example would be Section 9. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think to a certain extent, a film like The Ritual. Um, oh, I love that one. Even maybe The Witch. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and The Blair Witch Project, I think, is another good example of, um, you know, of this kind of idea that there's something dreadful out there. Um, but it's kind of beyond our ability to perceive all at once. It's so vast. It's so ancient. So I think that's, you know, that's, I think, what what I'm thinking about when I think about the uncanny and when I think about the emotion of dread and how it maybe intersects with with um, the, the history of horror. And there's also this idea of the uncanny as being something, and this, is, this comes out of Freud, something that's simultaneously familiar and unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, he, he talks about dolls or mannequins that are so realistic that it's kind of upsetting. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is where the notion of the uncanny valley comes from. It's it's something that is extremely realistic, but, but it's not. And so it's familiar to us, but there's something that's off about it. Um, So dolls and mannequins, especially like ventriloquist dummies, Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the clown uh, doll in, um, Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are some of the figures um, um, in in that kind of way of, of thinking about the uncanny, um, or people who see you know doubles or clones yeah. of themselves. That that's that's actually um, a trope of horror fiction much more commonly than horror film, yeah. but it does occasionally crop up. Well, there's a really good story um, that you had us read in your class called The Midnight Express that deals with mm, right, right. doppelgangers. Um, and sp- I was really struck by you having us read it, too, um, because it was especially scary for me because it's about, it's about a young man in his childhood being afraid of a story called The Midnight Express and being afraid of a picture in the book, and then all this stuff happens. Um, when I was a child... I read that story, and I was very afraid of an illustration in the book. So to read it, it added, like, this special metatextual thing specifically for me as an, as a, an emerging adult. I don't think I ever told you that, but it was, it was kind of great. Right. I actually, so, you know, if there are people who are looking for a good, you know, horror season read, mm-hmm. yeah, The Midnight Express. I'm embarrassed to say the, the, the name of the author escapes me for it's, the moment, but it's... It's Alfred or Albert Noyes, I believe. That's right. Yeah, Noyes. N-O-Y-E-S. It's a very short story. Um, You know, it's a quick read. um, And right. So it it is about a young man who, as a boy, was afraid of a picture in a storybook. And um, there's actually a description of him reading the story but trying to avoid the picture. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the picture takes on this kind of almost fearsome quality like it, it could hurt him and yeah. eventually without you know I don't 
I don't want to give anything away, yeah. but essentially, right, it, it does actually become, I'll just say this, the picture does kind of end up getting him. Um, yeah. And there is a way in which the even the act of reading the story is kind of portrayed, it, it puts the reader, the real reader, kind of in the position of this fictional yeah. reader of this scary story with a scary image. So it's a really fun, um, and yes, it does have this kind of self-reflexive quality to it. So it's a fun, it's a fun read. It's not too scary. No, but it's, it's like a little Twilight Zone episode almost. And yes, it's, precisely. It's smarter. It's, it's, it's creepy in the same way as Lovecraft, but it's almost smarter than Lovecraft. But anyway, we should, uh, we should move on from the Midnight Express, even though I will keep recommending it. Um, so we've mentioned We've mentioned cycles a number of times. Um, we talked about the fifties. There was like this weird sci-fi horror fusion, like with there was a lot of giant bug movies. There was them. There was Tarantula. Um, right. In the seventies, there were like there were weird midnight movies like Eraserhead, and then also the slashers mm-hmm. started to come along. And recently, right. we've like in the last four or five years, really, we've started to see this uptick in very like personal films like Hereditary and and mm-hmm. Us that deal with kind of intimate sociological issues or issues within a family in a more nuanced way. So do you think that these cycles um, sort of reflect the, the era that they're made in? Um, yes, yes and no. I mean, simply meaning that um, I mean, it's always fun to, and, and critics like to do, the students like to do it, um, to kind of map um, the zeitgeist, you know, so map contemporary social preoccupations, mm-hmm. fears, mm-hmm. you know, ideas, themes that kind of emerge in, in daily life to map these onto particular film cycles. And a cycle is just a much, it's much, it's, you know, it, it's a, it's a kind of a, a short moment within the history of, of, of a genre. So if horror is a genre, then the slasher film is a cycle, mm-hmm. the zombie film is a cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, just for those listeners who, um, you know, who haven't taken the class and who, or who haven't studied film genre mm-hmm. in that way. Um, and, you know, so there are certain genres that, or sorry, there are certain cycles that explicitly reference things that are, you know, in the air and on the news. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the 50s, you know, giant monster films are a really good example because typically those giant monsters are explained by uh, mutation, mm-hmm. atomic mutation. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they're the result of experiments with atomic power and with the atomic bomb. Um, and so that's a very explicit reference. There's another group of films in the 50s, also sci-fi horror hybrids, um, usually involving alien invasion. Mm-hmm. So um, The Thing from Another World, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm-hmm. I Married a Monster from Outer <laughs> Space is actually one of these. Yeah. Um, you know, that deal with another kind of set of issues that was significant um, in the United States in the 1950s um, you know, as a result of post-World War II suburbanization and a kind of fears about the fears about the spread of communism, but also fears about the kind of homogenization of um, of life and kind of the loss of, of individuality hmm. um, in this period. And so there are certain films that are, that are that very explicitly reference that. And I think most viewers at the time would have, um, you know, would have recognized that. Um, but cycles are also a product of the capitalist film industry <laughs> that, that needs to have innovation um, and, and newness and product differentiation to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it, it's true that a group of films about the effects of the atom bomb, you know, that those, you know, those are pretty well rooted um, to historical events of the 1950s. But, you know, I think that zombie films could probably have come up kind of at any time and and they have mm-hmm. um you know that there was a zombie cycle in the 60s and 70s there was you know there, there have been probably at least two since then yeah um and so i think i think sometimes monsters especially are um can, can be a blank slate for a lot of social fears and and um you know so so zombies i think 
and you actually asked me this ahead of time whether COVID was going yeah. to you know, resuscitate the zombie genre. Yeah. Uh, because there's because the contemporary the modern zombie is is kind of the product of 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 some sort of viral infection rather than something supernatural. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it could. Um, and, you know, I think a cycle, there, you know, I could see there being a cycle of COVID films, whether they're all horror films or not. That, that, that's another question. But so my answer was yes, or, yes and no. I think, I think sometimes a cycle can be explained as the industry's response to um, an opportunity. But, um, yeah. You know, so the slasher film cycle was at least initially a response to the totally unexpected success of Halloween. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I don't know that there was necessarily anything on people's minds in this country in the seventies that is easily mappable onto slasher films, you know, or, or there's nothing particularly unique about that period where you couldn't have had slasher films come at some other period. Um, and you know, I, I think it's at least as much about the kind of the opportunism, the kind of commercial opportunism of the industry, as it might be a matter of horror films reflecting, you know, society's nightmares. I will, I will say this for slasher films. While we're talking about them, I, I do think maybe one thing that kind of and Halloween is great. First off, like it totally makes sense that it would have kickstarted the genre. It's great. The original one is great, and some of the sequels too. But you know, it, it it was made around the time that the Hayes Code started to be lifted. Um, Halloween was? Or wasn't it? I When was... No, the- Halloween, you know, so the Hayes... So, you know, basically a certain way that Hollywood films were internally censored, um, which is um, what you're referring to, the yeah, Hayes Code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which was, you know, an office within, um, basically within the Hollywood industry. Um, that ended in 1968. Okay. Um, and Halloween is, is, is 78. That's right. Um, and so it is true that, you know, um, across the, you know, the 1970s, you do see certainly an uptick in graphic violence, not only in horror films, but in like crime dramas of the 1970s, which are sort of famously brutal. Mm. But even even the relaxation of you know or, or changes in certain industry practices, um, the, the shift to the rating system that we're familiar with now, which happened in 1968, even that, you know, I, I don't know that that necessarily is something that is you know would be related to kind of a like broader cultural or more widely held social fears. Um, yeah. So so. Um, I mean, one thing I suppose you could say about about slasher films is that um, they do seem collectively to say something about teenage life and sexuality. Yeah. Um, you know, and at the same, and, and, and a lot, of, and, and a lot of them take place at at summer camps. Mm-hmm. You know, which is where you would have teenagers getting together with minimal adult supervision and getting into that kind of trouble. Um, and at the same time that you have films like Halloween and Friday the 13th, you also have other kind of summer camp movies that are comedies. Yeah. Um, you have films like, you know, Meatballs and, you know, you, you have films that are essentially about the same group of kids. Um, they're just not, you know, being menaced by a, you know, by a slasher. Yeah. Um, and so maybe there's something to be said by, by looking across genres and across cycles, um, you know, and saying that there, there seems to be something going on where there's a kind of an interest in that, those kinds of characters and those kinds of situations. Well, and that's sort of what I was getting at. And I, I did get the Hayes Code date wrong by 10 years, but I, I was sort of wondering if like, if the slasher boom could have been a result of like an increased interest in and an increased ability to show sex and death together mm. on screen. Because like, you know, the perfect example is towards like the very height of the slasher boom is sleepaway camp because it's mm-hmm. it's so preposterously gruesome and also so bizarrely sexual um mm-hmm. both in really weird ways um and I, I i it, it I, that just i it just made me think about it so yeah i mean there certainly is you know i mean certainly the slasher film has its 
origins in the late 1970s. But, uh, you know, it really is a cycle of the 80s. And in the 80s, we do see in kind of American politics and social thought a kind of growing conservatism, yeah. especially as regards sexuality, yeah. gender and sexuality. Um, and, you know, right, there, there certainly are, are critics and scholars who have looked at slasher films, you know, in, in that respect, um, insofar as you can interpret them as kind of reactionary because what happens is that, um, you know, sexually licentious teenagers mm-hmm. get punished with death. Um, and the, the ones who are not trying to hop into bed with one another, um, but who are characterized as maybe, um, more straight laced. Yeah. Those tend to be the ones who win out. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if you wanted to, if you wanted to kind of read the slasher cycle in, in that way, that would be one place to look. Yeah. Well, and Sleepaway Camp is like, it's a bizarre example because it has that twist at the end that really, mm-hmm. it complicates it in such a strange way. Um, that like, I, I, we shouldn't dwell on it, but, um, and also I don't want to give the twist away. It's, it's a weird movie. Like it seems unhealthily obsessed with sexualizing teenagers, um, is, yeah, is sort right. of my I mean, thing about it, it. It is tricky that you have these films that are about people who are, who are young people. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think they're all supposed to be, you know, 18, but it, it, you know, sometimes their actual ages is left kind of vague (laughs) by the narrative. And, um, you know, it's kind of partly the spectacle of their sexuality. And so, you know, these films, I think, were as notorious when they were originally released for their kind of frank displays of sexuality as for their graphic violence. Although, to watch Friday the 13th now, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's almost a sweet little film. (laughs) It's like, it's it's so tame. It's very, yeah. Um, but it really did rile up a, a lot of people yeah. for those two very reasons um, uh, when that when that genre really was at its peak. So y- you're right that there is, I think, an obsession or at least a sustained interest across those films um, in sexuality, especially yeah. teenage sexuality and the way it gets interlaced with violence. Um, I think was taken to be unwholesome by uh, a lot of people, especially more conservatively minded people. Um, even if you could think of those films as punishing precisely the kind of behavior um, that, that a, a more conservative mind would have indicted. Well, and that, you know, a good, I think we talked about this example in class, but there's a really very mediocre film from the 80s called Slumber Party Massacre that basically presents its slasher as this pathetic pervert that lives in his van. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that was actually an attempt to make a feminist slasher film. Yeah. So it was it was um, written by women. It was, um, it was directed by a woman, and they were avowedly feminists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted to try to make a slasher film that I think could work as a slasher film. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would also throw into relief the gender politics that were submerged in in most slasher films, um, and and they wanted to kind of put that much more on the surface. So, yeah, the the killer in the Slumber Party Massacre films is called the Driller Killer, and <laughs> you know, there's no getting around the you know the phallic nature of of his instrument. But then again, most slashers are killing with things like knives, yeah. chainsaws, yeah. spears bows and arrows, um, so, you know, whatever your phallic weapon of choice is. So, you know, maybe there is something to that, um, and it took a kind of psychoanalytic approach to these films to sort of unearth these these themes a bit. Yeah. But um, don't see Thunder Party Massacre, but you should, but speak away <laughs> camp I recommend to your listeners. It is, uh, it's surprisingly good. I, the issue I take in it is sort of, I feel like it sort of revels in the thing it's also commenting in in a complicated way, but yeah, yeah. yes, without without spoiling it, uh, yes. Oh, not that I, I I the thing that always gets me um, is 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 that the, uh, there's a there's a chef at the camp who I find it very hard to listen to, but that's um, oh yeah yeah right. right. But, you know, but also, I mean, he's definitely meant to be a character we hate. I just feel like there's stuff in there that would never be in a film made today. Um, there are a couple more things I want to talk about before we go. Um, and one of them is, you know, going forward, 
we're entering a new decade, which means possibly a new cycle will start sometime soon, especially because of the disruption that coronavirus has presented. And I've been thinking about the the types of movies that were made after September 11th, um, like in a post 9-11 world, because that was when we started to get torture porn. And that was when we started to get a bunch of remakes and a bunch of zombie films. It was also when we started to get a bunch of really kind of bad films that were sort of about youth terrorizing sweet and good-natured adults. Um, like Eden Lake is an example I think of a lot. Um, I Do you feel that national tragedies tend to make film more repressive? Because in my mind, that feels like a style of filmmaking that's pretty repressive. You mean horror? Any, but horror is a good example. Like, like when I think of a film like Eden Lake, um, which I've not seen, but I've read about, it feels like a film that's telling people to be afraid of the up and coming generation. And I feel like that's a pretty regressive, not, not repressive, regressive thing to do. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so I think, right. There, there are horror films that are definitely sort of politically reactionary. Yeah, and then I yeah. think there are horror films that are potentially um, more progressive um, and, you know, I, I think those are the really subversive ones, um, because those, I think if you're paying attention, mm-hmm. those call into question, um, kind of, you know, those, those call, call into question social institutions, um, in, in sort of, in, including several that are, that are bad, that are repressive, or at least potentially so. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about, I mean, you know, I, 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 I can't predict, but, uh, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is that um, although COVID has certainly been the most prominent of these, that, that we are, you know, living in a period in which, well, you could put it this way, um, our environment seems to be turning against us. Yes. Like, if you think about other things that are going on um, that, you know, provide a kind of backdrop uh, against which COVID is taking place, um, you know, COVID is the most recent fearsome virus uh, that we've had to deal with. Um, and um, it's going on at a time that we're seeing wildfires on an unprecedented scale and flooding and a particularly busy hurricane season. And, you know, so it could, it could very well be that all of these factors taken together could, you know, reinvigorate, uh, um, you know, maybe more than one horror cycle that, that's somehow about, um, you know, the fearsomeness of, of nature. And, and that might, you know, that could take the form of, you know, I'm not, I don't think it's going to be another round of giant monster movies, although, you know, the, we're, we're kind of in... Um, in the middle of these remakes of the Godzilla and King Kong films, yeah, there that where those monsters are increasingly represented as nature's revenge on the arrogance and the destructiveness of humans, and critter, you know critters like Godzilla are the kind of nature's referees. It's like okay, you got to stop destroying the planet, so <laughs> we're waking up, yeah. Um, if Titans, which is what they get called in the movie. So, I mean, there's certainly, I think, a preoccupation now um, and, and a genuine fear uh, about, you know, what the future of the planet's going to be and, and what kind of havoc it can wreak. And that's fertile territory for, for horror. So, you know, I, I could see that happening. You know, beyond that, I mean, I could see there being, you know, COVID films, but that seems like it would be a fairly gimmicky cycle about things like social distancing and mask wearing. I did have this idea that, you know, when we first started having to wear masks that, you know, that, that maybe COVID turns out to actually be a way for, you know, alien beings to get into our society and they look like us, except they have some kind of messed up mouths or something. They, you know, they oh. have fangs. And so they're wearing masks so you can't really tell if they're around <laughs> you. But, you know, that's that's why I, I'm not a writer or a director of films. That's, that's why I, I teach about them. So I'm sure someone can do a lot better. But I, I, my point really is just that, you know, I, I think that, that, 
that COVID is one of, of many things that is increasingly raising alarm bells about the environment and, and our continued success as a species in it. And, and again, that can be very fertile territory for horror. Oh, definitely. And it's worth noting, even as you were saying that, I got a notification on my phone that said we just reached the highest number of daily either cases or deaths since mid-August. So, wow. still here. Yeah, that, that is that is definitely, you know, that is something to feel genuine horror at. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I often think that really good horror films, you know, like any kind of good entertainment, is, is a kind of escapism. Um, and so, oddly enough watching really violent movies now about slashers and and zombies might be more fun because they allow us to turn from, you know, the really anxiety producing and and ugly, you know, political and and social realities uh, of the time. I'm not recommending that we do that all the time. No. Um, But, but sometimes we do need to be able to turn away from that and into our imagination. And, um, you know, horror is great for that. I agree. Um, Before you go, there's one more thing I would ask because I know we are very short on time. Um, But you've name-dropped a number of different movies and books. um, And I will second your recommendation of Sleepaway Camp, mostly because I just find it fascinating and also because there's one character who acts like she's on ecstasy during all of her scenes. It's the aunt, um, Aunt Martha. Um, It's an unbelievable film. It really is. It is, genuinely. it It will stun you. Oh, in so many ways. But um, is are there any other works you'd care to name drop before uh, before you go? Yeah, I mean, so my I, I think if I were to give you know a, a list of between five and ten yes. horror films that I think are the all time greats and that are um, you know that I that I, I, I watch every year mm-hmm. or maybe every other year mm-hmm. at, at, the, at this time. You know, Psycho is, Mm -hmm. you know, I used to be able to count on everyone having seen Psycho. Now that's less and less the case. Mm -hmm. So that's terrific. Um, The Exorcist, Mm -hmm. uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Mm -hmm. Dawn of the Dead, the 1978 version, although the remake uh, is also very good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Return of the Living Dead, um, you know, which is a kind of comic take on the zombie cycle but still really effective as a horror film Mm -hmm. um and um the thing the original thing uh from the early 80s by john carpenter which is noteworthy and we didn't really talk about this but it's, it's noteworthy for having some of the greatest practical visual effects um of all time in other words effects that were done in front of the camera while the camera was rolling oh, yeah. not not part of sort of post-production or digital trickery um so there's some really great monster effects in there definitely um, so yeah those are those are some i'd recommend i mean i i could keep going there there's there's so many um that i we could have just talked this whole hour just about that oh, and maybe yeah. that would have been of more use um <laughs> You know, just just see these movies, but yeah, those those ones that I I just listed off, those are all those are all canonical horror films, oh, yeah. including mod- some some modern ones oh, yeah. um, that I that I would recommend. I I would also tack on. I think you know you brought it up earlier. I, I will stand by the original Saw, and I will stand by maybe Hereditary in a in a very modern sense, as I think being like very modern classics, but. Um, thank you for your time, Professor. I, I'm aware you have to go. I told you this wouldn't take the full hour, and it did end up taking the full hour, so I appreciate no, you giving okay. it to me. That's okay. It's probably been apparent that I enjoyed talking about this sort of thing, so I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you very much, Professor. And, Doobie listeners, this has been Adam Venrick talking with Dr. Jonathan Wally for the Coffee Hour. This was a very fun and spooky conversation. And for a full list of movies that I would recommend um, to tack on, um, I will post that on the website. Thank you very much for listening.